Hello, everybody. My name's Josh, and I'm going to be your host for the Operate English podcast today. Before kicking off with our guest, I just wanted to address a couple of things. This podcast has been inspired with the goal of providing education and information resources to students and professionals across Australasia, and hopefully even students worldwide in order to enhance essential surgical knowledge and skills to inspire and improve the surgical workforce for future generations. We will be looking forward to all of our listeners' feedback so we can make necessary changes towards creating a podcast devoted to you. Today, it is my honor to welcome Dr. Mark Kerner, a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon who specialized in musculoskeletal problems in the knee and shoulder. Dr. Herner undertook his medical training in Johannesburg, South Africa, who then went on to get a master's degree in sports science in the United Kingdom and returned to Johannesburg to complete his orthopedic training. As a Canadian, I thought it'd be important to note that he went on to complete his fellowship training in Toronto, where I'm from, while gaining experience with the Toronto Raptors the current NBA championship winners. Currently, Dr. Herner works at the Northland District Health Board, Northland Orthopedic Center, and Kensington Private Hospital. Today, we're gonna be discussing osteoarthritis, knee osteoarthritis specifically, and Mark will be taking us through a step-by-step knee arthroplasty. So without further ado, I would really like to give a warm welcome to Dr. Mark Herner. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Josh. Is there anything that you'd like to add about yourself that I've missed? No, that's been very comprehensive. Thank you. (laughs) Great. Um, So I guess we're going to get right into it. Um, And we're going to jump into just general osteoarthritis. So could you give us an idea of how a patient would typically present with osteoarthritis? So um, typically patients will present normally complaining of pain. That's the primary presenting symptom that they would normally have. It's typically of gradual onset. The pain is often worse with prolonged activity. If it's involving the knee or the shoulder, it's often worse with specifically the knee when they're walking or ambulating. Activity often makes the pain worse. And gradually, there's a deterioration over a period of time. The pain typically gets better when they're at rest. um, But often, for some reason, these patients will get significant night pain. Um, They may complain of joint stiffness, Um, the joint may swell up, Um, and and most of the activities of daily living, depending on what joint is involved, will gradually deteriorate over time and become more difficult. When a patient typically presents to you with joint pain, parentals and red flag conditions, would you be considering and that you'd want to rule out? I think always in musculoskeletal problems, the level of the pain is very important. And if, you, if we look specific, more specifically at the knee, if patients present with severe pain, there are two primary red flags that we would like to exclude. The first one is infection, um, which is often an emergency to treat. And the second one is pain related to a traumatic event. Those are the primary red flags that we need to exclude before Um, going further into the examination history and investigation because those are things that will need to be dealt with immediately. And how would you distinguish degenerative to inflammatory arthritis on history? So inflammatory arthritis is often a lot different to degenerative arthritis. Degenerative arthritis um, is maybe primary or secondary. Um, The secondary is often due to traumatic instance and the primary is normally we don't know what the cause, but there's probably some genetic predisposition. Inflammatory arthritis patients will often present with 
involvement of other joints. So they may have involvement of the other knee, hands. Um, they could have significant changes associated with other joints. And with rheumatoid arthritis, we'll often see changes in their hands. The pattern of stiffness is slightly different compared to degenerative arthritis. And the joint as well um, may look different to a patient presenting with uh, degenerative arthritis. But there's often overlap and it's difficult to differentiate entirely until they've been investigated more fully. What are some risk factors and causes of degenerative arthritis that you'd want to ask about throughout the history? So I think, I think it's probably better to differentiate arthritis into primary idiopathic um, and secondary causes of arthritis. So when we're talking about degenerative arthritis just on its own, that will be an age-related problem. Um, and as the patient gets older, they may undergo some degeneration with time. Secondary arthritis is due to some other factor. And some of these factors may include trauma. Patients may have, um, they may have some associated problem um, like gout or <coughs> crystalline arthropathies. Um, patients may have an arthritic, um, a, an inflammatory arthritis, which causes the arthritis. And this is secondary arthritis. It's not degenerative arthritis, but this is a, a secondary cause of arthritis. Endocrine problems, metabolic problems may cause it. Um, patients who've had an infection when they were younger may um, become arthritic later on if they've had some surgery. If they've had a ligament injury like an ACL or PCL injury that was treated surgically or non-surgically, the patient's had a meniscectomy um, or any other post-surgical um, um, problem, uh, post-surgery well, surgery or previous surgery may predispose the patient to development of osteoarthritis. They may also have congenital problems which, leads, which may lead to osteoarthritis they may have an angular deformity, which may um, be the cause of their arthritic problems. What joints are the most susceptible to osteoarthritis? So I think that that's a difficult question, but um, in, as an orthopedic surgeon, the two most common joints that we see that are affected by um, osteoarthritis are the hip and the knee. Um, and then I would say probably the hand is the third most common and specifically the first CMC joint. And then other joints may be affected. The shoulder, uh, foot and ankle um, uh, may occur as well. And then obviously the spine. But certainly from an orthopedic perspective, the two most common joints that we see are the hip and the knee. Thanks, Mark. That was excellent. Um, I think what we're going to do now is we're going to shift a little bit more towards your specialty and focus on the knee. Um, so we're going to move on towards the clinical examination and investigations and then get into the main aspect of what this podcast is meant to go through. The actual surgical procedure. So Mark, what clinical examinations would you perform, if any, with a patient presenting with knee osteoarthritis or what you suspect as knee osteoarthritis? So orthopedics is a fairly simple um, specialty and I think uh, when you examine someone with a knee, um, it's you always follow a look, feel, move philosophy. So before you actually put your hands on the patient or start palpating around the joint, um, it's essential that you actually look at them. And the patient needs to be um, undressed or uh, modestly undressed so that you can expose the hips um, and both of the knees. Um, I like to get the patient to stand in front of me before I examine them to see what the alignment of the lower limbs are, whether they're in varus or whether they're in valgus, whether there's any evidence of hyperextension. 
I'll also get them to actually turn around so that I can visualize the posterior aspect uh, specifically to look at the popliteal fossa. And at the same time, while you're looking at them, you can often observe things like they may have quadriceps atrophy, the patients may have swelling in the popliteal fossa, and they may have scars from previous surgery, which may help you with your diagnosis. And then you may pick up some other abnormality just looking at them. You may see um, that their hands are slightly deformed, and this may be an indication that they've got some form of inflammatory arthritis, which may be helpful. So once we've done that, we would then move on to a gait analysis. The patient um, stands and walks, and there's, cer there's certain things that we're specifically looking for um, that may indicate that the patient's got significant pain. So the patient may have an antalgic gait. In other words, they spend as little time in the stance phase on the affected limb uh, when they've got an antalgic gait. If the patients have got significant wear of the medial or lateral compartment of the knee, um, they may, when they get a varus knee, have a varus thrust, uh, which is quite obvious, and they may also have um, a valgus thrust um, if the arthritic changes are on the uh, lateral compartment of the knee. Um, once you've done that, I like to get the patient to lie down in the bed and then proceed with uh, my field part of the examination. And you need to be a very systematic in terms of examination. So you can always observe whether the patient's got atrophy of their quads by comparing it to the opposite side. Um, I will then check for an effusion in the knee, which is very common in patients with arthritic changes. Um, I then will palpate around the patella, the medial lateral aspects of the patella, come down along the actual patella, palpate along the joint line and go into the popliteal fossa. Um, patients with arthritic changes, depending on what compartment they've got it in, will get pain on the, on the affected compartment and specifically along the joint line. Um, they may have patellofemoral arthritis and get pain when you palpate around the patella. When I move on to the movement part of the examination, I always like to examine the hip quickly because patients with hip problems may present with knee problems and you don't want to be caught out um, by missing hip arthritis um, and think that the problem is essentially in the knee. So I do a quick basic examination of the hip to make sure that they've got no significant stiffness uh, or pain related to hip and then I'll move on to my movement part of the knee examination. Okay, so a lot of patients with knee arthritis will have a fixed flexion deformity. And if you ask them to do a straight leg raise, you'll notice that they can't fully extend. And you need to be able to differentiate this from a, an extensor lag. And then move on to flexion. And this can be done actively and passively. And patients with arthritis will often have limited flexion and may not be able to get above 90 degrees or 100 degrees um, or even 120 degrees. Patients with arthritis will often have pseudo-laxity of the ligaments. Um, so when you examine the medial collateral ligament with the knee in 30 degrees of flexion, um, isolating primarily the medial collateral ligament, these patients may appear to be lax, but in fact this is pseudo-laxity because they've collapsed into varus, and as you actually stress them, you're just pulling them out to their natural position. Obviously that can happen on the opposite side. The final part of the examination, you can test the anterior and cruciate ligaments, um, but patients with arthritis will often have pain. It's very difficult to actually evaluate the ACL and PCL. And it's probably not that important if you suspect the patient's got arthritic changes in the knee, unless you're considering doing a unicompartment replacement or a high tibial osteotomy.
And then final part of the examination is neuro, neurovascular exam, which is very important. I always stress that you should fill in the popliteal fossa. There's nothing more embarrassing than missing an aneurysm in the popliteal fossa. Um, and obviously patients may have a Baker cyst. And then it's essential to actually feel for distal pulses, um, specifically because of treatment later on may damage the arterial blood supply. If you've missed this in the preoperative period, um, it can be a disaster in the postoperative period. Obviously, you want to do a neurological examination, um, and then you also want to exclude problems that may be associated with the back, um, because patients may be getting radicular pain down into the knee, um, and this may in fact be coming from the back. What investigations would you order to confirm your suspicions with knee osteoarthritis? So I think that um, when you when you move on to your examination, it's essential that you have standardized x-ray x-rays. This is an and an AP lateral and merchant's view. Um, you must make sure that the AP view is weight-bearing, and I prefer to get a single leg weight-bearing view. Um, a lot of people just order a weight-bearing view, um, but you can imagine if the patient's got a lot of pain on the right knee and you get a weight-bearing view, they will tend to actually transfer the weight onto the opposite leg, and then you won't actually get the full effect of the weight-bearing. Um, so I prefer to get a single leg weight bearing, which gets compression of the compartment, which is arthritic. And then if you're not 100% sure uh, with your examination and your x-ray is not picking up the arthritic changes, then I'd get a Rosenberg view, which is with the knee at 45 degrees of flexion. And this will often pick up arthritis or subtle arthritis that you may not be able to see. And then finally, um, and this is very surgeon dependent, uh, you may want to get a long leg view and this helps with planning for surgery later on. And that examination is normally sufficient in a patient with arthritic changes. You don't need to get anything else such as MRI scans or CT scans. Most of, that, most of the information that you require will be on, a, on these x-rays. I think it is important as well um, in some instances if, you're, if you think that the problem is related to the hip, then get x-rays of the hip as well to make sure that the patient doesn't have significant arthritis in the hip. What are the hallmark features or how would you describe osteoarthritis while looking at these x-ray views? And would you see different things on different views? Yeah, so the, um, the four common findings in osteoarthritis are narrowing of the joint space, they get sclerosis, osteophytes, and subchondral cysts. Now, that, you, that you'll see in any view. So if you're looking in the merchant's view, then the patellofemoral joint may display those problems specifically related to the trochlear groove in the patella. Um, if you get an AP view, you're going to be looking for that in either the medial or lateral compartment or both compartments. And the lateral view may just show posterior subluxation or significant posteromedial where if the patient's got medial compartment osteoarthritis. Um, the single leg weight bearing view uh, will have compression down of the femur onto the tibia and will compress the compartment down. And this will just give you a much better idea of how arthritic the knee is as opposed to a supine AP view. Would you order any other investigations to rule out any differentials in this patient? Um, if, I, if I thought that the patient had an inflammatory arthritis, then I may order further investigations. However, inflammatory arthritis, the changes on X-ray are different to osteoarthritis. The patients get narrow, they also get narrowing of the joint space. They don't get sclerosis and they get periarticular osteopenia. And often specifically in the knee, patients with inflammatory arthritis will have a valgus deformity as opposed to a varus deformity. So 
in order to make the diagnosis, I wouldn't necessarily get um, additional investigations. However, if I felt that the patient didn't have osteoarthritis and I needed to clarify the diagnosis, then I would potentially um, investigate the patient further, such as doing an aspirate to exclude um, gout, infection, pseudogout, um, and then blood investigations for rheumatoid arthritis or in other inflammatory arthritis. But that wouldn't necessarily be a routine part of my um, investigations. Mark, uh, this because this podcast has a little bit more emphasis on surgery, uh, we'd just like to talk quickly about how you would manage this patient initially with non-pharmacological therapy or ph uh, pharmacological therapy, and when it would indicate to move on to surgery to treat this osteoarthritis. So when, when patients come to you for the first time, it's difficult to know how bad they are and for how long they've had the problem for. And in addition to that, to see whether or not they've actually managed themselves non-operatively and whether or not that, that management strategy has been effective. So definitely in just about any patient who presents to me with arthritic changes in their knee, I would consider non-operative management um, in the first instance, unless they were so bad that I felt that this, um, they just warranted immediate surgery. So the majority of patients definitely non-pharmacological um, therapy and pharmacological therapy um, in combination for patients with arthritic changes. And this would include physiotherapy, specifically concentrating on maintaining their mobility, um, strengthening up their quads and hamstrings and um, exercises to deal with core strength. If the patient was obese um, or if they have an increased um, body mass index, um, it would be essential to try and reduce um, their weight plays a very important part in aggravating and progressing the arthritic changes if they're morbidly obese and certainly by reducing weight this would improve their condition. Um, in addition to that, um, if they have access to an exocycle, I like using that because that automatically strengthens up the quads and then the physiotherapists have a number of modalities which they would use to try and improve the range of movement um, and keep these patients mobile. In addition to that, I would use pharmacological agents as well. And the mainstay of treatment for patients with arthritic changes, specifically osteoarthritis and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, provided it's safe for the patient to take these. Um, so a lot of elderly patients have associated cardiac problems and they're not able to take anti-inflammatories. So I would normally start off with something simple like paracetamol, which is obviously more for pain. Include an anti-inflammatory in this. Um, and then you can consider other, um, other agents. So for example, a lot of patients come and ask about things like um, chondroitin and glucosamine. Um, I'm not opposed to these agents, although there's very little evidence that they actually make a significant difference, but they don't cause any harm. The second modality would be um, steroid injections. And provided the patient uh, was bad enough and they didn't have a relatively normal articular cartilage in the rest of the knee, um, steroids, um, quarter, yeah, steroid injections can be effective for a period of time, often lasting between four to six months, and can reduce the inflammation in the knee. There are other agents, such as hard uronic acid, um, which can be injected and acts as a um, almost like a shock absorber or gives some lubrication to the knee. Once again, um, it's debatable whether or not it works. Um, the evidence is a little bit thin on uh, whether or not hyaluronic acid works, um, but it has been effective. 
And in more recent times, uh, one of the um, more popular forms of treatment, certainly in North America, is platelet-rich plasma. Um, but in this part of the world, it has been recommended that we don't use platelet-rich plasma or stem cells because the evidence, um, there's not enough evidence to back up that it does actually work. Um, but um, platelet-rich plasma as opposed to stem cells is becoming a lot more um, popular and seems to work as a very powerful anti-inflammatory in the knee rather than actually growing articular cartilage. There are other modalities well, that are used as well, sorry, um, and that includes bracing um, or orthotics in the shoe. Um, it's difficult for patients to tolerate these, but you can consider using it. When you're looking at a patient and you go through your examination and investigations, what are the things that really lead you to decide that this patient needs a total knee arthroplasty? So the primary, the primary and probably the only thing that we're able to treat effectively in orthopedic surgery is pain. So the patient um, should have pain that is not well controlled by all of the non-operative measures that we've spoken about, um, such as um, the physiothera physiotherapy or pharmacological agents, they get breakthrough pain. Significant night pain is very important. And then in addition to that, compromise activities of daily living, such as they're unable to bend down and tie their shoelaces, they can't walk up and down stairs, they may struggle to get into the car, um, and there are lots of other activities of daily living. But the primary, the primary indication for a total knee replacement is, is pain. Mark, um, obviously uh, in a lot of medical practice, there's quite a large gap in health literacy between um, surgeon and patient. How would you go about explaining the procedure to a patient? Um, so first of all, um, not all patients with osteoarthritis need to have a, a knee replacement. They can be treated with other forms of surgery, such as a high tibial osteotomy, if they fit into the right, um, if they have the right clinical signs and symptoms, this may be more effective. They could have a unicompartment replacement or they could have a total knee replacement. So my discussion in terms of surgery uh, would encompass all of these and the potential risk and benefits of the various procedures and what they, what they may get out of it. Um, patients need to understand the risks of a knee replacement or arthroplasty, and these include things like infection, um, damaging the blood vessels at the time, getting DVTs uh, post-operatively. And then in addition, um, knee replacements are painful operations. Um, although we are able to control most of their pain in the post-operative period, patients need to understand that it is painful and that they need to work very hard afterwards in order to regain range of motion. They can end up with stiffness after the knee, and this may, be, um, this may need to be dealt with. In addition, a lot of patients will ask us, and we will explain to them about the different types of anesthesia that they can have. Um, and the majority of surgeons nowadays would, prepare, would prefer a spinal anesthesia because this is the lowest risk uh, with the quickest potential recovery. Patient, uh, I would explain to patients how long they'd be in hospital and how long they would, uh, their recovery would take. So in terms of when they would be standing, when they would be walking, when they would be driving a car, how they would manage at home on their own, and also when they'd be able to go back to most of their normal activities and return to work um, or just their general activities. Um, so that sounds pretty cohesive with dealing with consent. So I think we're going to get into our step-by-step -step, uh, procedure. Um, 
But before we move on to that, I just wanted to ask you about the different common approaches you would do towards completing a knee arthroplasty and when they would be indicated. Okay, so we'll, I think the discussion is now directed primarily at total knee replacement as opposed to unicompartment or highly tibial osteotomy. So say we've now decided to proceed with a total knee replacement. There are a number of different ways that you can approach this. Um, so this can be done through a midline incision. Um, and if you're doing um, a varus knee um, or a valgus knee, some surgeons may approach it doing a medial or lateral patella. The standard approach that I use would be a midline incision with a medial parapatella approach, whether it's a varus or valgus knee. I tend not to do a subvastus or midvastus. Um, and when I get inside, as soon as I've done my um, uh, pre-patella incision, um, I would then try to evert the patella and then proceed from there. Okay, great. And let's move on to the preoperative preparation. What what preparation do you and your team undertake before going through the surgery? Right, so, Aside from consenting. Yeah, so we're assuming that the patient has been consented. So when they get into the theater, <clears throat> all patients are given a pre-scrub uh, with chlorhexidine. Um, and if they if they do have hair over the over the area that is shaved uh, in the actual theater and not in the preoperative because it reduces the risk of infection. Patients are given intravenous antibiotics, and we normally use um, keflosporin, and this is given an appropriate dose dependent on the patient's weight. Patients are often, as I said earlier, they're given a spinal anesthetic, and they might be given a light general anesthetic or sedation if they don't want to listen to the operation. They're placed in a supine position, um, and then I use a lateral support, and in addition to that, I'll use something um, on their foot so that I can flex their knee up to 90 degrees and above. Um, I tend to use a tourniquet, um, but it has become popular to perform knee replacements without a tourniquet on. And in addition to that, there are a number of other things that you can actually use um, to during your surgical procedure. So this is in, this includes either using conventional instrumentation, patient-specific instrumentation, computer navigation, or robotics. And I, I use computer navigation currently. The correct limb is marked. I, uh, the patient is then prepped and draped, um, and prior to the incision, we perform a timeout in theater and we go through a standardized protocol, um, identifying the patient, looking at their, um, if they have any allergies, whether, whether to make sure they've consented for the procedure. Everyone confirms this and there's a whole list of things that we go through prior to the actual incision. Could you please walk us through the key details of um, the medial parapatellar method that you had talked about earlier, going from the patient position to um, throughout the procedure and then through closure. And you can include any relevant anatomy, key incisions, key steps and key equipment and techniques that you would use throughout. So initially I inflate the tourniquet um, to 250 millimeters. And as I said earlier, a lot of surgeons don't, no longer use a tourniquet because it can cause pain afterwards but then you have to deal with a lot of blood during the procedure. Um, the knee is fairly superficial, um, and the incision is not normally not a very deep incision. It's done with the knee in a flex position. Incision goes down to the patella, and then we make a parapatella, inc parapatella incision, which goes through the quadriceps around the medial aspect of the patella and just uh, medial to the patella tendon. Um, once inside the knee, there's normally a fusion which gets aspirated, I like to evert the patella um, in the, with the knee in extension and then, and then flex the knee. 
And the first part that I excised is I removed the fat pad, and this just improves my visualization. Now, depending on whether the person has a varus or valgus deformity, may depend on the type of release that you'll do, and that would either be part of the medial structures or the lateral structures. We then re remove all of the osteophytes because these tend to tent up the medial or lateral collateral ligaments. Um, the menisci are removed, and then depending on what you're using to help you with your alignment and what type of alignment methods you're utilizing during the procedure, and this may be the various forms, it can be mechanical alignment or kinematic alignment, um, so at this stage, I would use I use computer navigation, and I insert navigation pins into the distal femur and the proximal tibia, and then the computer is used to, and then we navigate the various uh, parts of the knee, and this sets up the knee and tells us what the alignment is, whether the patient has a fixed flexion deformity, if they're in varus or valgus, and then based on that, uh, we will then proceed to make the cuts. Um, the cuts are made utilizing computer navigation, which helps us with whatever um, type of alignment you're using, whether that's kinematic or mechanical. Um, so once all the cuts are performed, we then need to balance the knee in extension and balance the knee flexion um, so that the ligaments are going to be stable in both. If the patient's got a fixed flexion deformity, you need to make sure that you've done sufficient bony release and soft tissue release that you can bring the knee out into full extension posterior osteophytes are removed. And then again, there are technical issues related to the knee, whether you're using a knee that preserves the cruciate ligaments or removes the cruciate ligaments, or you're using some of the newer knees, which are medial pivot designs. These are, these are more complicated issues, but um, the basis of the knee and inserting the knee are fairly similar in terms of making the cuts. Once you've made the cuts, uh, you'll then insert a trial prosthesis um, and try and bring the knee into full extension to make sure that the patient does come out to full extension. You then flex the knee and make sure that the patient has got full flexion and make sure that the knee is stable as you go through the range of flexion. And in addition, make sure that the patella is tracking um, normally while you go from full extension to full, flex to full flexion. Once this is all done, then the knee is prepared, the bony surfaces are prepared and dried, cement is inserted, the components are inserted, excess cement is removed, um, and then we also use high-dose local anesthetic, which is injected into the posterior, into the posterior capsule and around the wound uh, before we close the knee. Once this is all, once the final components are inserted and the cement is, excess cement is removed, the knee is pulse lavaged and cleaned, to make sure there's no debris left in the wound. The medial arthrotomy is closed with an interrupted suture, and then the wounds are closed in a number of layers. Um, and I'm, I tend to use a subcuticular suture, and I use Dermabond, which is a glue, um, to close the wound. And then I use a special uh, waterproof dressing over that, uh, which is glued onto the wound, and this enables the patient to shower without a dressing on their knee almost immediately in the post-operative period. Once that's done, ice packs are applied to the knee and then the patient goes back to recovery and obviously to the water. Thanks, Mark. That was great. Um, just wondering how long it would typically take for a patient to recover after a procedure like that. So after total knee replacement, the most difficult period of recovery is the first six weeks. So um, in the immediate post-operative period, patients will normally see a physiotherapist who will get them moving immediately. 
we get them standing and then the most important thing to achieve is good range of movement and we like them to get to 110 degrees within the first six weeks. In that first six week period, the knee is very swollen um, and it feels warm and the warmth remains for about three months and so does the swelling. A lot of people or patients are concerned that they may be infected in that time period, but in fact they're not. Um, that's just part of the recovery process. Patients will also be on some form of anticoagulant for the first six weeks. The majority of patients by six weeks are comfortable enough to stand, walk, and drive. And some patients, if they recover very quickly, are back to most of their normal activities. The majority of patients are back to normal activities by three months. And patients continue to improve after knee replacement for one year. So they have big improvements initially in the first six weeks and then small improvements after that. And normally, whatever they've achieved by one year, that's as good as they're generally going to get. What are the different individual variables that may impact a patient's recovery? So preoperatively, the most important variable that affects the patient's range of movement is their preoperative range of movement. So if you have a very stiff knee preoperatively, you won't necessarily achieve 140 degrees of flexion. If you've got a very good range of movement preoperatively, then you should achieve a very good range of movement postoperatively. Um, there are other factors that may affect it, like morbid obesity might make it more difficult for patients um, to achieve good range of movement and mobilize well. Other factors that may affect their recovery are patients that smoke. This may interfere with the um, ability to heal adequately. Um, those are probably the most important factors uh, preoperatively. Um, there are lots of other comorbidities that can potentially affect or increase the risk of infection, such as diabetes, um, will increase the risk of getting infection. And as a result of that, we like patients to have an almost normal HbA1c if they are diabetic preoperatively, because if it's not, then the risk of infection increases exponentially. Morbidly obese patients, generally with a body mass index over 40, have an increased risk of developing infection or other, co or other medical problems in the post-operative period. And we would generally like them to lose weight prior to surgery and get to a BMI below 40. If you were to leave all the students and healthcare professionals listening at home with a couple takeaway points, what would you tell them? I think when you, it's very important when you speak to patients about a knee replacement that they understand um, how big the actual surgery is, how difficult it is to recover, and specifically how hard patients have to work afterwards in order to achieve good range of movement and good mobility. The majority of patients will achieve a good result, but very few patients achieve a forgotten knee. Now, probably about 60% of patients will achieve a very good result, but a very high percentage of patients won't actually achieve a completely forgotten knee. And that is really what we're trying to achieve with the knee replacement. It's essential that you take a good consent from the patient and explain all of the potential risks and benefits of the procedure with them. Um, it's very important that patients understand that probably the worst potential risk or worst potential complication that can happen is developing an infection. Um, because if they develop an infection after a joint replacement, often the joint needs to be removed. Um, and then they need to be on antibiotics for a prolonged period of time. And patients need to be aware of this. Um, those are probably the most important points um, that can be taken away from this. Thanks, Mark. And thank you everyone for tuning into the Operating List podcast. In order to deliver a podcast for you, we're calling on all of our listeners and our colleagues 
to provide us with feedback so we can make sure we fulfill our goals of delivering a podcast that inspires and provides you with a worthwhile surgical education. You can find us on Instagram at The Operating List and on our Facebook page, The Australasian Student Surgical Association. We look forward to seeing you all next time and thanks for tuning in to The Operating List.